Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their articles from the latest issue. This week, we're going to be hearing from Christina Lamb, the best-selling author and the Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, who writes a letter from Kabul. And then we're going to be joined by Simon Clark, an associate professor at the University of Reading, who argues that we need to have boosters. And finally, Hannah Moore, an American in the UK, writes about the horrors of London's supposedly American candy stores. First up, it's Christina Lamb. The Taliban Cultural Commission sounds a contradiction in terms. But for me, like all foreign journalists, it's the first stop in the new Afghanistan. There, in a dusty office on the first floor of the old Ministry of Information, I was handed a letter which allowed me to go anywhere in the country except Kabul airport or military installations. In a neighbouring office, I met Anna Muller Samangani, a Taliban commander from the northern province of Samangan. He's an Uzbek, resplendent in crisp white shawar kameez, black waistcoat and black and white silk turban. He told me he has read one of my books. Do you feel safe in Kabul? Have you had any difficulties? He asked solicitously. He assured me that the new Taliban just want to be friends. We have learnt from experience and now we want to connect to the world and interact with them in a good way, especially Western countries. It's hard for me to get my head around. Not long ago, they would have viewed foreign journalists as potential targets for kidnapping. Several fighters I chatted to on the street exclaimed, why are you back when they found out I'm British? But then they asked for selfies with me and sent WhatsApps with flower emojis. It's all part of a Taliban charm offensive, which started a couple of months back when they created a WhatsApp group for foreign journalists. The billboard at Kabul airport, which once bore the president's picture, now proclaims the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan seeks peaceful and positive relations with the world. But the I heart Kabul sculpture on the grass in front has tellingly lost its heart. Hard as it is to see Kabul like this, I was relieved finally to be here. I was deep in the Amazon on assignment in a remote Indian village when Kabul fell. The village had solar power and a daily Wi-Fi hour, which was just enough to get a stream of texts asking if I was safe, as well as messages from Afghan friends begging for help to escape. I couldn't believe that after 33 years of reporting from Afghanistan, I had missed the main event. I couldn't have been further away. It took a three-hour canoe ride, two-hour drive, eight-hour boat trip and three flights just to get out of Brazil. Then on to Europe. In Pakistan, a quick shop to buy a black niqab at the Dignity Store and finally a 10-hour journey overland by road. Six PCR tests in two weeks. Travelling these days is a complicated business. At my hotel, Taliban guards held out a mirror on a stick to check under my chassis for bombs. The BBC's least is set, Lindsay Hilson from Channel 4 and I 
were told by embarrassed receptionists that we must cover our heads even inside, as a Taliban commander had complained. We didn't fight jihad for 20 years for foreign journalists to walk around like this. That evening, there was an enormous barrage of gunfire, and I rushed out of my room thinking that we were under attack. The Taliban are celebrating, shrugged the front desk manager. Out on the streets, the Taliban were riding around in NATO-supplied police jeeps, their white Taliban flags flying. One wore a US Army cap and carried an American M16. Got them in Bagram, he smiled, and these. He waved his feet, which were clad in new desert boots. I have been here nearly a week, and I have seen small protests every day from women holding up placards, demanding their rights. Shots are fired to disperse them, but still they come out. Women say the Taliban can't go to work at the moment for their own security. That's what they said when they took power last time in 1996. Five years later, apparently, it was still not secure. A Taliban press conference was an invitation I couldn't turn down. It was held in the government media center built by the Americans at great expense. Taliban spokesman Zabiullah Mujahid walked down the stairs, checked himself, and then sat in front of rows of cameras. As a woman, I was made to sit at the side of the room. I waved my hands, but he had a list of people who could ask questions. He answered them politely, but selectively. There was only one question I really want answered, and it will take months to know. Have the Taliban actually changed, or is it just a facade to get foreign aid? Many of my friends have fled or are in hiding. Only one was brave enough to meet up, a rapper. I'm okay, physically, she says. Overnight, we saw our lives turn black. Her best friend, she said, broke her acoustic guitar in half on the day the Taliban took control of Kabul. Every night since, the pair have sat on the roof looking at the stars and crying. It's hard to imagine how once we drove round the city together in a taxi while she rapped. What was the point of the past 20 years? We gave people like my rapper friend the chance to dream, and then we snatched it away. Would it have been better if we had never come? That was Christina Lamb. And now, Simon Clark. It's hard to remember a time when politicians have so publicly put pressure on the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. Even the Vaccines Minister, Nadeem Zahawi, said this week that the booster programme is his absolute priority and it will help us to transition the virus from pandemic to endemic status. So why is the JCVI so against booster jabs in all but the rarest of cases? My understanding is that its thinking has three parts. First, that the UK has not experienced Israel's waning immunity against infection because we have had a longer gap between doses. Second, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been widely used here but not in Israel, provides longer-term immunity against infection than the Pfizer jab, which has been deployed in both countries. And third, although not explicitly stated, the belief we shouldn't be using vaccines here when much of the world is unvaccinated. The JCVI chairman, Professor Sir Andrew Pollard, hasn't been shy in publicly arguing against booster shots. While he recused himself from all of JCVI's COVID meetings, he says the developing world has a greater need. I'm told his thinking has influenced other committee members. 
So while the JCVI will not take a wider view on the effect of vaccinating children in the community in the UK, it seems happy to deny boosters to the UK because of lack of vaccines available globally. There are problems with each of these assumptions. There is strong evidence of waning infection immunity in the UK. Recent published studies from Oxford University and King's College London have demonstrated this. Yes, Israel's problem is more advanced than ours, but the pandemic has taught us that countries don't suffer in lockstep. Winter in the UK isn't the same as autumn in Israel. The Oxford data showed too that immunity from the Pfizer vaccine was initially more potent than AstraZeneca's. It dropped more rapidly, but that doesn't mean it will continue to do so at the same rate. Immunity is waning. If JCVI waits for the perfect data sets before acting, we may all end up paying the price. It's entirely possible we'll look back on this moment with deep regret. We've recently seen infection numbers in Scotland rocket. The amount of occupied Scottish hospital beds has already more than doubled in a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, one in 75 people in the UK has the virus today, according to the Office for National Statistics. And infections in England are running at more than 20 times the number they were this time last year, when there were no vaccines and following months of restrictions. With the return of schools and universities and the autumn weather arriving, we could very well see a big rise in hospital admissions soon. Many find this a difficult notion. Vaccines were supposed to end the pandemic after all. A fundamental issue, however, is that earlier this year, in a desire to provide good news and to encourage people to get vaccinated, some politicians and journalists pushed the boundaries of credibility about what the vaccines could actually do. Yes, they are impressive against severe forms of disease, but they do not stop the virus circulating as effectively as initially claimed. Where Israel led the world in vaccinating a large proportion of its population, it now leads the world in seeing that immunity decay. Infections and hospitalizations climbed, as did deaths, but with the latter remaining lower than for previous waves of infection. The vaccines blunt the threat posed by the Delta variant, but they don't eliminate it. But focusing solely on deaths is glib and ignores the threat posed by COVID. We didn't have lockdowns specifically to reduce the number of people killed by the virus. That was almost a fringe benefit. As crazy as it sounds, we had them to prevent our healthcare system being overrun. Hospitals cannot work if they're filled with COVID patients struggling to breathe. Fill intensive care with these patients and there won't be room for someone who's had a stroke or a car crash. Fill the regular wards with them and they pose a threat to other patients and not just chemotherapy patients who have compromised immune system. Anyone who's had an operation will have an impaired immune system for some time afterwards. Morphine and tramadol, common post-surgery painkillers, weaken the immune system. Give somebody who is recovering from surgery COVID and there's a very real chance they will die. COVID patients not only take up valuable bed space, they also require special management to protect others. With community infection numbers so high, this isn't a straightforward task for hospitals. In Israel, 60% of COVID hospital admissions are people who've been double vaccinated. In a population where 20% of adults aren't vaccinated, this is clearly a problem. 
It correlates with observations made in the UK that antibody levels drop a few months after receiving either the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccines. Similarly, the defence against infection appears to be dwindling here too. All this strongly suggests that the protection provided by the current crop of vaccines is transient and needs to be topped up, perhaps repeatedly. In Israel, the use of booster jabs resulted in a greater than tenfold reduction in the relative risk of severe disease and an elevenfold reduction in relative risk of getting infected. For all the talk of the vaccine providing weaker than expected protection against transmission of the Delta variant, if you don't catch the virus, you can't pass it on to anyone else. The booster jabs have also kept hospitalizations down in Israel. Last Sunday, there were 1,096 COVID patients in hospital, 54% below their peak of 2,387 on the 17th of January. But because they only used Pfizer, our experience won't be a carbon copy. While millions have received Pfizer here, we've also used AstraZeneca and Moderna. If boosters are employed here, a clear strategy of who gets what and when will be needed. Give people a third dose too early and their boosted immunity may well end up waning again too early. Professor Salman Zarka, Israel's chief Covid officer, has already said that the country needs to prepare for a fourth dose. The UK government recently ordered 35 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine for delivery in the second half of next year. If this isn't to give people booster jabs, then what is it for? The government's booster programme may well end up being overturned by the force of an incoming wave of infections, or politicians may just circumvent the JCVI's advice, citing exceptional circumstances. Legally, it isn't clear what's possible. But if they can't do this, another type of political pressure may be brought to bear. The governments of France, Germany and the US are all preparing to give their citizens boosters. If that becomes normal, as other countries get to grips with vaccinating their populations, the UK could end up being an outlier. The debate over emergency coronavirus legislation will heat up shortly. Opponents fear it will lead to a new round of restrictions over winter. On the current trajectory, that may not be unfounded. There are reports this week that the government is considering a circuit breaker lockdown next month if hospital admissions continue on their current trajectory. Admissions to hospital are 80% below their January peak. On Friday, there were 7,637 COVID patients in UK hospitals, compared with 39,254 on the 18th of January. But this is the summer, and on the same date a year ago, that number stood at 817. The government has reportedly said it will only act if deaths rise to an equivalent of 50,000 per year. That sounds a lot, but as been pointed out by Professor Oliver Johnson from the University of Bristol, it amounts to 137 deaths per day. The latest seven-day average is 110, and it is expected to increase shortly. Unless the JCVI seriously believes that boosters pose a significant risk to the nation's health, the price of not offering them will be paid in human lives. That was Simon Clark, And finally, Hannah Moore. The British often complain about an invasion of Americana, from burger joints to twangy accents picked up from television. I love my adopted countrymen, but for an American living far from home, these complaints can be tiresome. 
However, there is one Yankee invasion I hate as much as the locals do. American candy stores. There are now nine of them on London's Oxford Street alone. A guy called Chase Manders is to blame. He started importing and selling American candy to Britain 18 years ago and opened Kingdom of Sweets on Oxford Street in 2012. Soon after, stores that once sold knickknacks to tourists started muscling in. I paid a visit to see what all the fuss was about. Could these shops take me back to my childhood? The answer was no. I went to Kingdom of Sweets and to the nearly adjacent American Candyland and found them to be almost identical in decor and fully identical in merchandise. London's American candy stores are most un-American. America is known for excess, anything you want, any flavor, style, color, any size, as long as it's extra, extra large. Choice is a form of wealth, so why not sell American candy to those Europeans who've seen these tantalizing products in expensive American movies and television? Real Americans don't go to these candy stores. We don't even really have them in America, except M&M's world. More on that horror later. You can buy candy in any corner store, hardware store, gas station, or pharmacy in the U.S. We rarely have stores just for candy. You can get it anywhere, and that's how we like it. I expected these shops to be soulless tourist traps like so many recent additions to Oxford Street. What I didn't expect was how sordid they are. At Kingdom of Sweets, Cola Willies, Candy G-Strings, and Jelly Super Sperms are sold alongside actual sex shop items like edible body paints. Cola Willies? No respectable American would sell those, let alone use the term willy. There were boxes of Kama Sutra gummy figures, candy boobs, choice of fruity or sugar-coated cola, and gummy love rings, not for fingers. The most shocking item was a lollipop, quite realistically shaped like a vagina. Americans think of Brits as uptight, yet it's Americans who are actually pretty prudish about sex, at least in public. But that's not the point. The point is customers of a candy store are presumably children, or perhaps not. These American candy stores are aimed at the jaded and the joyless, a place to stock up for yet another hen party. They are an abomination. I resent my country's association with them, and not because I'm a prude. I won't apologize for their presence on the streets of London because I do not acknowledge them as being American. At least I'm not alone. The Google reviews speak for themselves. Visitors complain of candy being sold well past its sell-by date. The prices often aren't even displayed. When I visited, there were makeshift price tags stuck on with scotch tape. Where did this Candyland craziness start? M&M's world is the original of its kind. The first shop opened in Las Vegas in 1997, and bigger ones soon followed in places like New York City and Minnesota's Mall of America, before London's M&M's world opened in 2011. I first experienced M&M's world in my junior year of high school in 2007, and I remain as baffled by its appeal now as I was then. My drama class took a trip to New York, and it was decided M&M's world was top of the itinerary. MoMA, anyone? Statue of Liberty? Hell, I'd even settled for Tiffany's and the rest of Fifth Avenue. Just please, God, not M&M's world. What even happens in there? I refused to go inside, so I didn't find out. I killed time loitering on the street, bored in the middle of Manhattan, but I was resolute. 
Call me a snob if you like. I'm proud that my 16-year-old self understood these venues for the rackets that they are. Google M&M's World and the suggested search is What can you do in M&M's World? Good question. Here are the top answers. You can see M&M's in pretty much every color. Print your own personalized M&M's. Watch the M&M's 3D movie. Get your photo taken with M&M's characters. Back to American Candyland on Oxford Street. My husband insisted I checked it out because Kingdom of Sweets isn't American enough. Why is it a kingdom if it's American? he asked. I looked for something appealing. Instead, I found more cola willies and rows and rows of Pop-Tarts. 24K Golden's Mood, the worst pop song of 2020, blared from the sound system. I couldn't take it anymore. I settled for three packs of strawberry Twizzlers, of which I'm still fond, and four individually wrapped Jolly Ranchers, watermelon-flavored. They didn't have cinnamon. I blew 30 pounds on this measly lot. The Jolly Ranchers were past their sell-by date. That was Hannah Moore. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. And remember, we have an exclusive offer for podcast listeners. If you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS, you'll get 10 issues of The Spectator for just £10, as well as a free bottle of PIMS. What are you waiting for? Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Bye.